Good morning. Uh, as mentioned, uh, my name's Matt, and I serve at Houston Church Planning Network, which office is right next door. Um, just a little bit more about myself, in case you're wondering who I am. Um, grew up in Virginia, uh, went to UVA, then to Gordon-Conwell Seminary, same seminary as Jeremiah after being called into ministry. Uh, had plans to go the normal pastoral route, become a youth pastor, associate pastor, senior pastor, all that, but God had different plans. Uh, ended up um, being part of five different church plants, leading to as the lead planter um, in five different cities, and um, never expected that. Uh, ended up working at a seminary called Fuller, directing church planning for them, and then um, on staff at our denomination, uh, overseeing church planning. And most recently, I've been serving at First Presbyterian Church here in Houston, overseeing church planning, and uh, it's the church that uh, launched Seven Mile, and so it's a wonderful pleasure to be here with you. Have a wonderful wife, Grace, and two boys, EJ and Aaron. So that's my one-minute spiel, and, um, but so privileged to be here because I'm so encouraged to see how God's grown this church and been so blessed by the staff, especially Jeremiah's leadership, so it really is a privilege. So thank you for letting me serve you in this way. Um, as I was praying about this morning and what to say, uh, uh, it made me think about the last few years and what we've all been going through. Uh, and needless to say, it's been a pretty crazy few years, pretty chaotic, uh, pandemic, social unrest, chaotic political landscape, war in Ukraine, mass shootings, inflation, climate changes all around the world, pretty unsettling. And for many, it's been, and it still continues be, to be, a pretty rough period in their lives. Even for myself, it's been uh, pretty exhausting uh, being a pastor during these last few years. Still recovering. But one bright spot, um, one blessing in disguise during this time has been the fact that so many people in this world have been almost forced to reevaluate and reassess their lives. You've all heard about the Great Resignation. Last year, um, it was estimated 4 million people quit their jobs at the height of the pandemic. Now, there are a multitude of reasons for this. Some people were fearful of returning to the workplace because of COVID. Others wanted better pay, more flexible hours, or were just burnt out. But a lot of people left for deeper and more existential reasons. Um, in an article that I had read in NPR, um, some of the questions that people were asking was, what do I really value in this life? What do I want to spend the rest of my life doing? Where do I want to live? Who do I want to live with? How do I want to live? And, and a, a pandemic and crises like COVID causes us to take a step back to reexamine our lives, doesn't it? Um, and it's been true for Christians as well, except the questions become a little bit more God-oriented. God, what do you want me to do with my life? Do I believe in all this stuff? What's my purpose? Should I marry this person? I've seen a lot of COVID romances. Um, even for myself, these few years, God's been causing me to reevaluate my calling to ministry 
And, um, and I don't know if it's because I'm going through a midlife crisis. I turned 50 last year, and so got my AARP card, and, you know, watching all these retirement shows and channels. And so, I'm like, what do I want to do for this second half of my life? But there's been a more fundamental question that I've been wrestling with and asking myself, and it's this, what's it really mean to follow Jesus? God, what do you really want from my life? Now, I know all the Pat Sunday School answers, and you do too, responding to the gospel, love Jesus, practice the spiritual disciplines, uh, be part of small groups, serve and give, um, and all these are good and necessary. But the question I had is, is there something more fundamental, deeper, that God, that you really want from my life, that you want from all of our lives? Well, this is the question that I want to explore with you this morning. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? Uh, to help us begin to answer this question, we're going to look at the verses that was read. Uh, it's a somewhat overlooked, obscure passage because uh, it's sandwiched right in between some heavy-duty verses about the end times and then Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion. So people kind of gloss over it, but in this little vignette, I think lies the core, the essence, what Jesus, what Jesus wants from our lives. And what is that? Well, let's take a look. We're going to start in verse 1 once again. Uh, this is NIV version. You might have a different version. Uh, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume made of pure nard or ointment. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. What is going on here? Well, at this moment, religious leaders were plotting to kill Jesus, but were afraid to do it because of the crowd. But while they were plotting their murder, uh, just a few days before Passover, before Jesus was going to be betrayed and arrested and crucified, he decided to have a meal at a, uh, with a man named Simon the leper. We don't know much about Simon except that he was a leper and that he was probably healed by Jesus. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with leprosy, especially back then, it was a skin disease that caused people to be shunned and banished from society. They were seen as spiritual unclean. They weren't allowed to come to a place of worship. So they were the bottom rung of society, outcasts, forgotten. Yet Jesus decided to dine with this particular man on one of the most important periods of his life. We're going to look at some implications of this in a bit. Um, well, as well, what we see in the parallel account in John, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were there. You guys remember them? Mary and Martha, Luke chapter 10, they would host Jesus and the disciples. Mary sat at his feet while Martha was crazy uh, uh, getting the dinner ready. And Lazarus, a few chapters before, was the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So the people at this meal were people who were grateful. People who wanted to honor Jesus for what he had done for them. But while they were eating, something a little strange 
a little shocking happened. Mary, uh, in the middle of the meal, took uh, this alabaster jar of expensive perfume. Now, this was not your run-of-the-mill perfume that you go to the mall and people spritz you with. Um, it was extraordinary. Most likely, it was a vessel with a long neck that, uh, that contained nard or expensive ointment from either India or Himalayas. I'm not quite sure where. And it wasn't just something to make a person smell better. It was actually sometimes a family heirloom, an investment properly. Because back then, spices and ointments were quite costly. They were imported. Um, and because they occupied a small space, was portable and negotiable in the open market, they were sometimes people's investment. In Mary's case, her entire perfume bottle was valued at 300 denarii, which came out to be about one year's worth of wages. Translate to today's time, that's about forty to $60,000 bottle of perfume. Perhaps her entire life savings. So it wasn't just an ordinary bottle of perfume. It was Mary's entire 401k that she poured out for Jesus. In this passage, it says that she pours a perfume on Jesus' head but in John's account, it says she also pours it on Jesus' feet and then begins to wipe his feet with her hair. So imagine the scene with me. This Mary taking her entire 401k, breaking it open, just pouring it out on Jesus. Extravagant, even reckless. Theologically speaking, the only time when people used to pour oil or something like that over a person's head was, if you remember in the Old Testament, where when prophets and priests used to anoint kings, like Samuel did with Saul and David. Um, Mary probably didn't realize it, but in this case, Jesus was allowing her to anoint him as God's chosen one, the king. And it says in John's account, the result of this was that the whole house was filled with the fragrance. It was shocking, pretty radical, pretty reckless. Now, before we look at the uh, reactions to this and draw some lessons, there's a secondary lesson I think it's important to note here. And it's this, that Jesus chooses to identify himself with, spends the majority of his time with, the outcasts the bottom rung, the downwardly mobile of society, doesn't he? We see this in the fact that uh, he chooses to dine with Simon the leper and the way that he let Mary, a woman, and back then women were seen as lesser, to anoint him as a king, which was reserved for male priests and prophets. And this is critical to know because it's a reminder that Jesus rarely spent time with and rarely flirted with the elite or the influential, the movers and shakers of society. The few times he did, he had very bad things to say to them. Instead, Jesus intentionally 
frequently spend time with those without social standing, those who are the underwhelming, those who are the second, third, fourth tier of society, the forgotten. Jesus spent time with a downwardly mobile. And you see this throughout the Bible. God loves and cares for and highlights those who are brokenhearted, forgotten, and marginalized. God is the God of the underdog. Now, the implication of this, I thought about it for myself, is really, really challenging if you actually tried to apply it. First of all, it reminds us that we are the spiritual lepers and paupers of society. That's why God had to send his son for us. And that's humbling on the one hand. The second challenging part, which is even more challenging, is this. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus and we are to walk as Jesus walked, then we've got to do what Jesus did. We've got to spend our time the way Jesus spent his time. Let me give you a little illustration. Many years ago, I lived in Chicago. Um, I had a chance to attend a game at Soldier Stadium between the Chicago Bears and Dallas Cowboys, my favorite team. Uh, I apologize to the Texan fans here, but they are my favorite. My roommate uh, worked for a big company, scored some amazing tickets, box seats. Never been to an NFL game, never been in box seats. And the staff knew it because I kept asking, is this free? I can eat the, how, how much is this bratwurst? And they said, it's all complimentary. I was in heaven. I was enjoying it. Next to us, actually, in the next box, is mayor of Chicago. My vice president's wife, I think, was there. Um, but, you know, half of the, oh, most of the reason why companies give box seats is to network, right, and smooth with one another. Um, but when they made their rounds to me, so what do you do? Uh, I came with a, my roommate. Uh, I'm a pastor. Smiles went away. They're like, oh, nice to meet you, and just walked away. Nobody the entire time talked with me except my roommate. And I was fine because I was enjoying my bratwurst. <laughs> but that's how society works, doesn't it? Isn't it? People want to spend time and invest in the ones with social standing, social significance, to boost their own worth and value. From grade school to the corporate world, people want to be with the in crowd, right? With those who are more important, more popular. You see this even in the church. You really see this at pastor's conferences. Yet this is exactly the opposite of the way Jesus operated in this world. He didn't spend time, he didn't seek after those who would give him more social standing. He avoided them. He instead sought after those who were forgotten, the lowly, and lifted them up. Implication. What does that mean for us? If we follow Jesus, and we say we're supposed to live like him, what does that mean in the way we treat the people in our workplace, in our schools, on the streets, in our neighborhood. Let me put it a little bit different. If Jesus was physically here today with you and walked with you throughout the week, who would he spend the bulk of his time with 
how would he treat the CEO versus the janitor? What implications would this have in your daily life? That's just a secondary lesson. Keep that in the back of your mind. Chew on that. Back to the main passage. What were the reactions to Mary's crazy, reckless, sacrificial act? Verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. First reaction, anger by the disciples of Jesus. In the original language, it says that they snorted like horses. In John's account, we actually see that it was Judas who led this rebuke. And if you remember, Judas wasn't just the one that uh, betrayed Jesus. Judas was the accountant in the group. He was in charge of the money box. In other words, when Judas said that the money could have been used for the poor, more than likely he was mad that he didn't get some money for himself. Now, I think this was an intentional contrast that Mark did here between Judas, who was greedy for earthly gain and his own welfare, with Mary, who was willing to give it all away for the sake of Jesus. And this hints at the main lesson. Side note, what Judas said actually made sense, right? That huge amount of money, money, Forty to $60,000 worth of perfume could have been used differently. Mary could have just dabbed Jesus with it, right? Did she really need to break open that entire bottle? After all, serving the poor is important, isn't it? So what Judas said was actually correct. But as we'll see, he missed the point. Because what Mary's sacrifice showed was that they were something far more important. Verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus, unlike Judas, commended Mary. Why? And he called it a beautiful thing because it revealed not only Mary's heart, but what Jesus really wanted from our lives and her life. And it's this. Following Jesus means loving him more than anything and anyone else in this world. That's the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's to love Jesus more than anything and anyone else in this world. This is what God is after in your life and my life. Not just that we do our spiritual disciplines, go to church, join a small group, give some money here and there. He wants you to love him above everything and anyone else in this world. This is what Jesus meant when he said, 
The poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. He's not saying giving to the poor is unimportant or unnecessary. He's talking about priority here. Because in essence, what Jesus is saying is that you can serve the poor, you can serve and give without loving Jesus, right? But if you love Jesus more than anything and everyone else in this world, you are going to serve the poor. It's about priority. And Mary understood this, that love for Jesus took precedence over everything else, over her earthly possessions, over her security, even her reputation and the opinion of others. It means loving Jesus even over the good things of our lives. Good things like our family, good things like our friends, our career, our ambitions. Jesus says something pretty strong and shocking in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. That's harsh. He's obviously not saying that we got to hate our parents or hate our family, hate other people, because Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors as yourself, right? But what he's saying is this, that your love and devotion for Jesus should be so much that compared to everything else, it seems like hatred. Think about that. Does our love for Jesus, is it so great that compared to everything else, that everything else seems like hatred. I don't know about you, but probably not for me. But this is what the challenge of following Jesus really means. It's a radical devotion. It's an all-in type of love and passion. And Jesus says, this is what it means to follow me. It is to love Jesus without competition, without reservations, with reckless abandon. That's what it means to be a Christian. It is not assenting to a certain set of beliefs, living out certain set of values. It is not doing certain spiritual activities. It is to love Jesus without competition, without reservation, with reckless abandon. This is what God wants from your life and my life. That's what it means to follow him. That's why Jesus says she did what she could. Literal translation, what she had, she did. She gave everything. She broke that bottle for me. For us this morning, what in the world does this mean? What practical implication does this have? Does it mean that we should empty out our 401ks and give everything to God's work in the world? Maybe, probably not. Does this mean you should drop everything, relocate to a different country to become a missionary and and preach the gospel there? Maybe, maybe some of you here, but probably not most of you. Does this mean we should quit our work, 
stand on the corner of downtown, wear that sign, and preach the gospel, and tell people to believe in Jesus? Maybe. I don't recommend that as an evangelistic strategy, by the way. <laughs> but probably not. But I think it means this. That you're willing to do it if God calls you. You're willing to do it. That you're willing to say yes to Jesus, even if it looks foolish to the rest of the world. That's the application. Are you willing to say yes to God, even if it seems foolish to the rest of the world? Can I get a little more specific? It means being willing to say yes to God if he convicts you to give up a promotion or job offer because you know that it's going to be better for your spiritual life and your family life. It means being willing to say yes to God by saying no to certain activities that your friends are doing because you know that this, that dishonors God. It means being willing to say yes to God if he calls you to relocate, change schools, spend more time giving and serving because you know that that's going to have eternal consequences. Are you willing to say yes to God even if it looks foolish to the rest of the world? There's a book um, called Shadow of the Almighty. It's a book uh, about a missionary named Jim Elliott. Really old book. Uh, uh, you might have heard of his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, without going into too much detail. The main thing is that he was a missionary to Ecuador. But at the age of 28, 28, so young, he along with several others were killed by the very people they were serving. It was a tragic story all over the news. People were bewildered, shocked, and they kept saying, what a waste of a life. In response to that, Elizabeth Elliot shared a quote by Jim Elliot that said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. For Jim Elliot, his perfume bottle that was broken was not wasted or in vain because it was for Jesus. This is very personal for me because I experienced similar things throughout my life. Uh, second year in college, when you had to figure out majors and all that stuff, and um, I felt God's tug, this calling to go into full-time vocational ministry. Not that that's more important than other vocations, but it was my calling. And it was a struggle. Uh, I had very different ambitions. And then I said yes, and then I told my parents. Immigrant parents from Korea who had given up everything so that I could get a better education, become a nice Asian doctor, lawyer, businessman third. And when I told them, they were furious. Because not only was I wasting my life, I wasted their sacrifice. And my dad was an elder of the church. Now, sidebar 
Oftentimes it's fellow believers who'll criticize you the most when you feel called to say yes to God. That seems foolish to the rest of the world. But that's a whole nother sermon. Eventually they came around, as I shared last service. My mom said, yes, okay, you can do that, but maybe you can be like that Billy Graham fella, right? Yeah. <laughs> At least get some prestige out of it, right? It's like, no, right, that's not going to happen. Jesus says, he who does not give up everything for me, if you're not willing to break that bottle, you cannot be my disciple. That's the what question. But the more important question is, why should we do this? And more importantly, how the heck do we get to this place where we are willing to say yes, where we're willing to break open that bottle and say, everything I have is yours? Because this is really hard. Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 8. He says, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I say, tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In other words, what Jesus is saying here and pointing to is the fact that it's only because what he had done for Mary and what he will do in few days for her because on the cross, that he himself would break open his body. He would break his bottle and pour out everything for her. And because he was willing to recklessly abandon his life for her, he's saying, that's why she was willing to break open that bottle for me. And that's true for you and me. It's only when we come to this place where we understand the reckless love of God for you. We sang a song last uh, service. The goodness of God is running after you. The more you understand is that no matter how rebellious you are, no matter how far you go away, that God is running after you with the relentless, passionate love that cannot stop that there is a furious love that he has for you that no matter how much you may say no that he will keep knocking on the door until you say yes and when you come to that place where you understand and experience the furious relentless love of God then you will be compelled to break open your bottle but until then you won't even be willing to open the top so really the application here isn't to try to get to that place where you're willing to give everything to Jesus. It's coming to the place where you understand that Jesus gave everything for you. And to spend daily to, and asking God, God, I don't want it to just be my head. I want the furious love of God to transform and change my heart so that I would be willing and generously willing to give everything to you. So that's my application, to get to that place that is not just a head thing, but a heart thing, that you would understand and receive the furious love of God. Then and only then can you obey this passage. I'll give you a little uh, practical application. This is an advice that my mentor gave to me in college. 
And he said this, never start your day, never leave your time of prayer until you know that you know that you are deeply loved by God. Never start your day, never leave your time of prayer until you know that you know that you are loved by God through Jesus. If you come to a place where before you start the day, you know that God loves you with a furious love, that he will not let you go. That no matter what you do throughout the day, what sin you might fall into, that God even loves you at that point. What changed for me in my life, what kind of changed my way of loving and being willing to give everything. I remember uh, during my college days, I, I'd, uh, I won't go into the details of my sin life, um, but I was, I was struggling with sin so much. And I remember um, just feeling so guilty and wanting to just give up the Christian life and walk away, to be honest, because I said, this is too hard. It's too hard to follow you. And I remember sitting on my couch, actually laying down, and I was like, I don't know, God, if I can do it. And then this is what he said to me. I'm crazy about you. I said, but what about my sin? He said, I'm crazy. You know that goodwill hunting moment? It's not your fault. It's not your fault. God kept saying, I'm crazy about you. I'm crazy about you. I'm crazy about you. Until I finally said, okay. I accept it. And that's what changed it for me. This week, as you live your life, would you come to that place where you realize that Jesus is crazy about you? Then and only then can you follow him. Let's pray. God, this morning I pray for all of us that we would come to the place where the furious, passionate, reckless love of God would not just be a statement that we believe in our heads or just something that we confess, but it would be something that is experienced viscerally and deeply in our hearts that we would be overwhelmed by the reckless, furious love of God. That we would know that the goodness of God is running after us every day, every moment. And then, in response, that we would say yes to you. That we would be willing to break open our bottles and pour it out for you. Meet us here in this place, even as we partake of communion that reminds us of your broken body and poured out blood. Meet us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.